I'd like to talk tonight about learning to relate to the experience of fear with compassion, with trust, and with freedom. Our meditation practice is experiential, and that's why it's called practice. Through the process of opening to our experience, we can develop an awareness that can help us to see clearly whatever it is that's happening and to understand our experience. The freedom comes from this process of opening to the experience and understanding it. Because the practice is experiential, we develop the understanding by just taking a step at a time, by being with one breath at a time, by learning to be with one landscape of loneliness at a time. And by learning to take one step at a time, we learn how to surrender quite deeply to our experience in the present moment. I notice that we tend to judge our practice by the standard of what's happening in the practice. And it can seem kind of like a paradox that the practice is experiential, but the happiness and peace that comes from this practice isn't based on experience. It's experiential but the happiness isn't based on experience. So what we're doing is developing a relationship to what's happening. The happiness isn't based on what's happening. So whenever there's sleepiness, or joy, or boredom, or a fear attack, (coughs) or aversion, or peace, or metta, or yearning. There's all this change that happens in a day of practice. And we're (coughs) learning to develop a relationship to all that's happening. Not to get rid of anything, but to understand everything. We want so much to live fully in the present moment, to be at home in the world, And our inner security is based on the awareness that we're developing in this practice that isn't tied to our experience. Awareness helps us to develop this freedom. It's an inner home that's stronger than experience itself. The awareness is stronger than anything that can happen. So ultimately, the freedom in our life comes from understanding how life is, which is based on our own experience that isn't tied to our experience. That's basically what we're doing here. By being attentive to our experience, we can start to notice that we really never know what's going to happen, or that anything can happen. No matter how much we want to control our experience, 
you never know what's going to happen. The Buddha taught that all life is change, that there's this, this stream of change and movement that's a given by taking birth here. And because of this constant change, all beings who take birth share a tremendous vulnerability that we really never know it's going to happen. That's what means by all beings are suffering in this world. No matter who you are, what plane of existence, we all take birth and we'll all die. And this is an aspect of dukkha or suffering. It's not so easy for us to face that anything can happen. This spring when I was here teaching, I had uh, taken a walk out by the driveway and I found this beautiful robin's egg. And at first I saw it from a distance and the color was so beautiful and so pra uh, <laughs> pleasurable. And I thought that my, I didn't really explore it. I just took it for granted that the, the egg was broken and that a bird had hatched out of it and flown away. So I was all like, oh, what a beautiful robin's egg. And I went over to uh, pick it up and bring the uh, egg home. But when I looked really closely, there was this dead robin in it, like a little baby robin. And I was, it was so, so unexpected, I threw it down and I looked around to see if anyone looked, you know, because it was like, yuck. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was this thing that I had wanted to take home with me and put by my bed, you know. It, it just turned out to be a dead bird, you know. And, <laughs> and it was interesting to watch that shift from feeling like it was the most beautiful experience and birth to actually this tremendous aversion and then feeling like I had to open to that so many beings in the spring die, they don't make it. It's a beautiful time of year, but it's a struggle to survive on this planet. Just to survive as a species takes so much energy. If you can possibly imagine the world of an infant and how totally, utterly dependent we are for our survival, on others. And this journey that we all go through from being a fetus to being born, being an infant to a child, to an adolescent, an adult, even the basics are a struggle for most people here on the planet, just to get warmth when it's cold, or coolness when it's hot, or food on a public radio station uh, that I heard recently, and a woman in India was being interviewed, and she was and then from the, what they would call in the old days, the untouchable class, and she got paid one pound of wheat for a whole day of labor, uh, and what she did was to form cow dung into patties all day for fuel for uh, the higher castes. And 
even for her to get work, it was very, very hard. She only got work rarely and was hungry. Her and her family are hungry a lot of the time. So the interviewer asked her to describe what hunger was like. And she said, when you are hungry, you cannot even remember God. And so many people on the planet, that's what their experience is. Just to get food is really hard. Or just to know how much emotional warmth it takes for us to be happy in guidance, direction, purpose. Just getting our survival needs met for most people here is difficult. And at some point, we have to wake up. You know, our our deepest spiritual question is, what are we all doing here? I remember one time when I was sitting here uh, for a long retreat, and I had spent a lot of time indoors, and I walked out the back door, and it was spring, and I just saw, you know, the robins eating the worms, and it, you know, the bees drinking the honey, and it just seemed like I was seeing everything eating each other. And we were eating the food, and even if you're a vegetarian, we're eating other forms of life. We have to face this strange existence we're born into. So when you can face this vulnerability that we all share, we see that any being that takes birth here knows fear. That's the suffering. We know the fear of unpleasantness. We know the fear of pain. We know the fear of the unknown. We know the fear of death. Galway Cannell, a great contemporary poet, said, can you bless or at least not curse everything that struggles to stay alive on this planet? Because of this struggle to stay alive on the planet, we can hear the deep cries for security that we all experience. There are the cries for physical security, for emotional security, for mental or spiritual security. And there are so many forms that fear can take. There's the fear of sickness, or old age, or rejection. Or sometimes we'll have the fear that we're not doing the practice right, or that we're falling behind. Or maybe we have a fear of fear, of darkness, of not surviving. We all have our ways of um, expressing fear and projecting fear. Fear and the experience of feeling like a separate I are inseparable, really. On a deep level, uh, how the fear happens is that with each moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. And that's a given. We have absolutely no control over that. And just to understand that, that if you can really get in touch with that vulnerability, that we really never know 
whether there's going to be a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling moment by moment. It's this lack of control that's the ultimate vulnerability. (coughs) Because we fear unpleasant feelings, and because we get attached to pleasant feelings, we suffer. We avoid the unpleasant and seek the pleasant, and this is the cry for security. It's that wanting to control what's happening. And so this is our kind of conditioned way of of experiencing happiness, is this pleasure that comes from being able to control. You know, it's a kind of security that isn't secure at all. because ultimately the security is coming from being attached to pleasure and from pushing away pain. So in the Vipassana practice, what we're learning to do is open to all experience and to develop a relationship of willingness. It's a relationship of willingness to open to the unpleasant without pushing it away or withdrawing with fear. And it's a willingness to open to the pleasure and not hold on to it when it passes. That's the revolution in the practice. There's a change in our relationship to pleasure and pain. So we can overcome our insecurity, our fear of vulnerability, in this practice, just by being with our moment-to-moment experience, by learning to be vulnerable and open. What's quite interesting is that culturally, we tend to be conditioned to think of vulnerability as weak and not strong. And that is, you know, it's just the opposite of what's happening in this practice because the balance of the practice is this extraordinary openness and tenderness of heart, but it's balanced with the strength of seeing clearly. If the the seeing clearly isn't balanced with the tenderness, it becomes a cold observation of our experience, and it's not balanced. If it's too tender and too vulnerable, we tend to get overwhelmed by the fear because we're not able to see clearly what's happening in the moment. So the seeing clearly brings a strength and a confidence and a trust in the vulnerability. This is from... um, a short story called A Father's Story by André Deboe. It is not hard to live through a day if you can live through a moment. What creates despair is the imagination, which pretends there is a future and insists on predicting millions of moments, thousands of days, and so drains you that you cannot live the moment at hand. You know how heavy it can be when we think, I have to be mindful all day. You know, it's just, even that thought, 
you know, if we believe that thought, it's like having millions of pounds of heaviness on us. It's because it's impossible. And if we believe that thought, it's pretty hopeless. It's impossible. It's 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 not even it's um, it's just a thought, but it can be it can be create this incredible despair. But if we can try to just pay attention, if we can just try to be awake for one moment, it's really possible. And that's all we have. All we have is this unknown moment. We never know what's going to happen. And it's, it's this beginner's mind, this freshness of being able to be willing to have the courage to just be in this one moment and see if we can live through it. Just one moment. It's one step at a time. The present moment is really all we have. And we can't see ahead in the practice. All we can do is keep going. And it's important not to give up, but not to try too hard. It's this amazing balance of just this vulnerability of living through a moment and then living through another moment. It's like taking baby steps. The Buddha described uh, three characteristics of existence, anicca, dukkha, anatta, um, and I'd like to describe how we can have the experience of fear whenever we have an insight into one of these characteristics of existence. So for example, with anicca, which is impermanence that we live in this stream of change, if we really try to live through a moment and then live through another moment, if we can do that at times, If you take a look at thought and get a sense of the velocity at which thoughts are moving, it's extraordinary. It's just, it's mind-blowing to get a sense of how quickly they're moving. And that's an insight into change. Um, And this can bring up a kind of fear because, you know, what we think to be this solid thing called my mind (laughs) isn't so solid. In fact, it's the most ephemeral of anything we can exist, that we can experience. They're hardly there. They're so ephemeral. And yet there's so much power that they have over us. Or aging. For me, it's watching uh, Steve Smith go gray. It was really okay. (laughs) It was just, you know, very quick process for him, and it got silvery and silvery, and then when I started to get gray hairs, it wasn't so okay. (laughs) 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 It's amazing to watch how it's okay for everyone else to get gray hair, but when I started, at first I started cutting them out. (laughs) I'd say, oh, snip, (laughs) and now they're coming so quickly, it's like, oh, Okay, (laughs) but not me. (laughs) 
So there's this vulnerability and fear that we can experience around change. We can have the experience of fear with any insight we have into dukkha, vulnerability, that we never know what's going to happen. I was in a car accident recently with my friend Kamala uh, in Hawaii. We were on uh, the highway, which is the only road that goes around our island in Honolulu. And it was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever been through in my life because in going along the highway, it was almost dark, and I had just picked Kamala up at the airport. And I had looked in my rearview mirror really carefully when we came to a stoplight. And we were talking, and I looked in the rearview mirror again, and then I went to talk with her again, and the lights turned green, and I was just stepping on the gas. We never heard brakes. We never heard any sound of warning. It was just this um, truck about <laughs> going about 40 or 50 miles an hour hadn't seen that there, the traffic was stopped. And he admitted he'd been talking to his girlfriend. And he just hit us without ever trying to stop. It was not even <laughs> a mind moment of his of trying to stop. So if you can imagine you know, that kind of uh, you know, big kind of Toyota <laughs> truck hitting a car that's just starting to move, it was one of the biggest surprises I ever had. <laughs> it was just—it was such a total experience of, you know, wham! You know, it was just this. There was no sound. I never heard a sound. It was just so big an explosion, um, and it was amazing. It took Kamala and I weeks to try to piece together the sequence of what happened. You know, it was that shattering. It just felt like my whole body and mind shattered. And there was one point where I remember looking at us, it was like, this was the funny part, Uh, we were like raggedy and dolls, and we were flying through the air at the same time. And there was something so strange about sharing that karma. We were totally in synchronicity. We were just, that complete letting go, just (laughs) flying, flying through the air. At that point, it stopped being funny, of course, but... um, <laughs> Before we had the whiplash, it was quite amusing. Uh, <laughs> those moments tend to last a long time when you're in an accident like that. One moment tends to seem to last for an hour. Um, but when it finally all stopped, um, I said to Kamala, first, are you all right? I mean, can, you, can we walk out of this experience? And then I said, you know, that was life transforming. <laughs> and then she said, you know, that must have been some cause to have this kind of an effect. <laughs> we were just, it was such a major, and for, like three hours, I kept, all I could do was note, I was just noting, and whatever we were doing, it was like, you know, going through the emergency room and being with the policeman, and oh, and I kept noting, major impact. (laughs) 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 But just for, I just kept noting major impact. (laughs) And it took a few days, just major impact. Uh, And what was really interesting about 
later on, you know, for the first two weeks I was really afraid to drive. And then I have no choice but to be on that same road because there's only this one road if I want to go anywhere. Uh, and so for about two months I would never go in the lane that that experience happened in. I would every t- you know, when I'd go along that road, whenever I got close to the place where it happened, I'd move into the other lane. <laughs> and so there was one day where I got the courage up and I knew I was getting over the fear because I drove through that lane all the way home. And the next day, Kamala happened to come, and I, it was amazing. It was the same time of day. <clears throat> Picked her up at the airport. We were driving along, and I was saying, you know, Kamala. And she had never been back on this road, so she was experiencing a lot of the fear of being in the same time of day, the same lane. So I didn't go in the lane yet because I was saying, you know, Kamala, I did it yesterday. I was driving along the road and I was in the lane and it was really okay. And she's like, well, (laughs) I don't know. And so I said, you know, what really helped me is I looked in the rearview mirror and I could see that it was okay because I looked in the rearview mirror. And it was really funny because she turned around and she said, Michelle, it's not helping. And so I looked in the rearview mirror, and there was this huge monster truck <laughs> with these huge guys. They were right breathing down our neck. And I looked, and I said, oh. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> it takes time with these things to get over <clears throat> the fear. Every time I go through that place, I always go, hmm. It's every single time. I never go through that place without remembering it. So that's fear that can come up with the experience of dukkha. We can have the experience of fear when we have an experience of anatta. Say we're doing walking meditation and we have a sense of solidity of this is my leg, this is my body. But maybe we're going along and it's like an opening happens. And we really have the experience of just pressure or just movement. You know, it's, it's something we might have heard about but never had the experience of so closely being with our experience that there isn't a sense of solidity. And it's, it is just pressure. And on the one hand, it can be, sometimes that experience can be a relief and a sense of freedom. But other times it can feel like the rug got pulled out and it's like our ego or it's like comes back and says, no, you know, I'm real, I'm here. The sense of solidity will come right back. We'll have a fear of not, of just being a changing process of earth, air, fire, and water. Fear can occur anytime we believe in any given moment that I'm my body or I'm my thoughts, I am my mind or I am my heart. As we start to open to the experience of fear and not get caught in it, we'll start to see that what we've thought of as being a separate I is just a concept. We, from the experience of anatta, we'll start to see that the body 
is just a transforming process of elements, that the thoughts are coming and going, that emotions are coming and going. Uh, And that can help us actually let the experience of fear come and go, because we won't be seeing it as such a solid experience. What are the four great elements? Earth, air, fire, and water. Bhikkhu Bodhi um, says that these four primary elements are constantly arising and passing away, Um, but they have a real existence. They're not just conceptual constructs or an imaginary projection, but they are a real appearance in the mind. They come and go. But they also aren't substantial or self-subsistent, but they dependently arise. He calls them pulsations of actuality, which arise from the net of antecedent conditions. And these pulsations of actuality persist for an infinitesimal moment These pulsations of actuality persist for an infinitesimal moment and then perish, becoming a condition for other dhammas. That's what we call my body. These pulsations of actuality that persist for an infinitesimal moment and then perish. That's more of a Abhidhamma uh, description. I'd like to read you a description more from a Zen perspective. This is from Koban Chino Roshi. A student asked this Roshi, what does gate gate, parasam gate, bodhisvaha mean? And the Roshi answered, it doesn't mean anything actually. Everything is falling apart. Fall apart, fall apart. All together, fall apart. (laughs) We can't do anything about it. That's what gate gate means, really. There is nothing to hang on to. When we understand that there's nothing to hang on to, there's less fear. You know, we see that we're a changing process, but sometimes we don't see that so clearly and we'll contract, we'll get afraid that that's all we are. We'll think, well, then am I nothing? You know, this, this journey into understanding or wisdom, there'll be a fear that this implies that we are nothing. <coughs> there was a certain time in my practice where I started to have some very painful memories from uh, early, early on in my childhood. And at the time, I was really deep in the practice, and I had the memories just from the perspective of heat and pressure and burning. And there was no emotion that came up with them. And it was so liberating to have these these kind of re-experiencing these very painful memories from this perspective of anatta. 
And later on, uh, emotion, the, emo- the difficult emotions of terror surfaced with these emotions, but it was really helpful for me to move into them from this perspective of these elements, the body just arising and passing. It gave me the strength to accept what had happened and to learn how to work with the emotion that came up. This doesn't always happen this way for everyone, but I think what's important is to see the many ways that we can learn to relate to the experience of fear. We can relate from the perspective of physical sensations, from these um, pulsations of actuality. We can uh, relate to the experience of fear more from the emotional level. Um, Ultimately, the freedom is being able to relate to the fear as one would a sound arising and passing away. That's when the equanimity is strongest, when we can have that equality of valuing a sound arising and passing away, letting it come and go, and relating to the fear, just like that sound, letting the fear come and go. That's when one knows one is free. One knows one is free because there isn't a feeling, I thought I worked that fear out 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, or two minutes ago. If we have that relationship to the fear, or we think, oh, (laughs) I already did that, that's aversion. But if we have a relationship, oh, just like the sound of a bird, oh, here's this experience of fear, great. Let me see if it can come and go. All we need to do is get out of the way. I find that it's helpful to have a balance of a compassionate attitude toward the fear as well as um, the disidentification. If we don't have a relationship of compassion for ourselves when fear arises, is it often leads to aversion for the experience. But if we can relate to it from a place of compassion, it's quite helpful. For example, Kuan Yin, who is the bodhisattva of compassion, um, hears all the cries of suffering in the universe. She listens. She also hears all the joy in the universe. She hears everything. And that's one of the ways we can relate to the experience of fear, is to just listen to it. Just like you'd listen to the sound of a bird. To listen with this deep care, like you'd listen to any cry for security. Because fear really is just a cry for security in whatever way. The tenderness that comes from the compassion helps us soften toward the experience of fear. This is um, a quotation from Aiken Roshi about um, Kuan Yin. What we need is lightness. What we need is insecurity. 
What we need is all sounds to enter. It's out of that compassion will come the lightness. It'll, it'll, and the insecurity becomes okay out of that lightness by just letting ourselves listen to the fear like we would listen to the sound of a bird. In the dictionary, uh, Daniel Webster defines fear as a distressing emotion aroused by impending pain or danger, whether real or imagined. It's the feeling or condition of being afraid. There's a movie that I sort of like called What About Bob? Uh, And in the movie, there's (laughs) 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 sort of like... (laughs) And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a great movie about a patient and a psychiatrist. And the patient, Bob, is quite terrified most of the time. He's terrified to leave his apartment. Um, It's sort of a comedy, but he does a great... um, he really does good at uh, acting fear. So there's one point where the psychiatrist is asking him to describe his symptoms. So he says, and this isn't in order, hot sweats, cold sweats, pelvic discomfort, fingernail sensitivity, my lips turn numb, dead hands, involuntary trembling. (laughs) He goes on and on. Those are all the ones I can remember. Um, but even if you remember, you know, that feeling of someone described one day, you know, of the blood draining all the way out of his body, or, you know, the feeling of the sewing machine legs, uh, it's interesting to just see if we can open to all the very different, um, these pulsations of actuality, these different ways that fear can manifest physically. So these different physical sensations can arise and pass away, either from that perspective of dead hands, or it could be from the perspective of earth, air, fire, water, tingling, burning, tightness, pulling. And what, what is the process of fear in terms of the thoughts? You know, we can look at the physical sensations Yet if we explore fear very carefully, we can see that we're usually not afraid of what's happening in the present moment. Usually there's some memory of an unpleasant sensation that we're projecting onto the future, that um, the memory is of an unpleasant feeling that we didn't see clearly in the past that we couldn't open to in that moment. And because of that, um, we project it onto the future, and we're afraid of it because we don't know how to open to it. It's important to understand that, because when the experience of fear is happening, sometimes it's helpful to ask ourselves, is this happening, is what I'm afraid of happening in the present moment? 
usually fears of some future moment that we're afraid of not being able to cope with. And those projected unpleasant sensations that we were overwhelmed by sometime in the past. So there's a real relationship to the thought process of getting caught in the past and the future. If we want our experience in meditation to be experiential, um, we need to be able to open to our experience, which is opening to life. And so much of the practice is wanting to open to the truth of each moment, but we don't want any pain. We want to open to life, we want to be alive, but we don't want to hurt. And so the practice is one of letting go of control, but this letting go of control or being vulnerable has two aspects. There's the aspect of extinction or a loss of self, of annihilation, which we fear terribly. And there's this other way that we can experience opening to our experience, which is like a flowing into the universe that flowing into the universe is pleasurable. We want that. We desire that. In fact, we have a very deep yearning to flow into the universe and experience not being separate. Letting go of control, letting go, is a kind of death and that we flow into the universe. But if we flow into the universe, we have to be willing to experience the painful sensations as well as the pleasure. The fear of being hurt is so strong in all of us, and this is where that sense of um, being a separate I and fear are so inseparable. Try to explore this, because one can really start to understand what it is that we call I, because it's often this contraction of not wanting to flow into the universe because we're afraid we'll get hurt, we're afraid of the pain, or we're afraid of being extinguished. What's wonderful about the experience of fear is that every time it arises, it's really presenting us with a choice. We have a choice of separating ourselves from our experience and shutting down and feeling separate. Or we have the choice of experiencing whatever it is that's happening, whether it's fear or some other experience. It's a great choice. And it's okay, whatever choice we make, pulling away, or or going into it, we just start to understand more about what it is that we call I. We understand what it is to be selfless or a self. When we are lost in the moving away, in the contraction, this is what identification is. We think the fear is mine. And that identification of this I am, this fear, or this fear is mine, uh, keeps us more and more contracted. We feel more and more separate. And there's usually more and more fear. 
when there's a lot of fear, we just totally close. Actually, we kind of get annihilated in that closing, and we, you know, we get the opposite of what we expect. We feel more and more separate by moving away from our experience. And we can do that, we can do this with a physical experience or a mental experience, an emotional experience. Recently, I had a, a difficult interaction with someone, and I felt uh, attacked and hurt. And I did okay in the interaction, I looked okay, but afterwards, and I felt this um, kind of deep old karmic knot surface. And I saw that that um, difficult interaction, this, uh, I interpreted that as rejection. You know, I didn't know I had done it, but the, this deep old karmic knot for me is of not being wanted in this fear of rejection. And if I really look closely at, closely at it, it's like that fear of rejection is a survival issue. It's like I don't, I don't feel safe. I don't think I'm going to survive that experience. And I felt this total contraction. Um, I felt it after the, the interaction, but it was strong. And I asked myself, well, you know, what is the way that I can best relate to this experience? And it was so strong a contraction. At first, you know, what I wanted was just this reassurance that I was lovable, you know, that I was okay. And I just did this compassion, which is this, just caring about that contraction. And in that compassion, I didn't feel alone with it. And that was my experience so much of my infancy and childhood, was that I was so alone with this terror of not surviving because I felt so rejected. And I think that we all have parts of this in ourselves, so I wanted to describe it. And and out of that compassionate awareness came this openness to just feel the contraction, and it just slowly, just slowly softened and disappeared. The fear disappeared. This has taken me a lot of practice to learn how to do that. And so I want to describe what I used to do initially with the experience of fear in this kind of situation. I unconsciously believed that I wouldn't survive that experience, and I'd think I wouldn't survive, and I would shut down and and become hopeless. It was like I, I would want to die, really. I didn't think about it consciously, but there'd be this shutting down. And then I watched myself go through a stage of of saying to myself, I will survive this. It's like moving from I'm not going to survive it to I will survive it. But there was still an identification there. There was much more openness instead of kind of going, no, I'm not going to survive. I said, I will survive this. But you can see there's still an I there identifying with it. And slowly I learned to just see in that situation, well, I am alive. (laughs) It sounds simple, but it would be like, well, I am living. You know, all we have to do with this fear is see, well, I am taking another breath. You take another breath. 
and you take another breath, and you do survive it. You know, it's so interesting how it'll feel like we won't survive fear because it's this basic survival issue. But if you look real closely, you can just watch that whole process of identification and then take another breath and take another breath. I recently saw a phrase in a book that said, the forest knows how to die. And I thought that was so beautiful. It's um, a real gift to be here in autumn. It's the most beautiful time of year, in a way, in New England. The, the explosion of color, and the, it's like the flames of life in autumn. And then to just watch that process of the, the forest knows how to die, it's like really the forest knows how to let go. There's the, the leaves falling, and just to, to have that experience of really being with a, a needle, a pine needle falling, or really being with a, a leaf falling. And to start to see, like in November, it's like you can just see through the forest and see its, its um, skeleton. It's what we're doing in the practice. We start just letting go of a lot of the surface stuff, and we start to see very deeply this process of how we create ourselves who we are. It's this gradual letting go. In some ways, the forest knowing how to die or the forest knowing how to let go, ultimately, you know, whether it's life or death, it's really that it's just happening. It's like me saying, well, yeah, I'm just taking another breath. We just do live through a moment. Life and death is natural the in-breath, the out-breath. You never know if you're going to take another breath. And to think that we know is really arrogant. It's not the truth of things. In my early um, years of trying to learn how to work with fear, I used to feel like I was going to get to the bottom of it overnight and, you know, be done, know how to work with it. And I would take such a big dose of it that I would terrify myself and then, you know, wonder what happened. And then I'd feel more afraid of the fear. So if fear um, tends to be something that comes up for you a lot, Try to remember that it's actually, opening to fear is a gradual, gentle process. If fear or terror arises, if we're mindful enough, it's helpful to take a little dose of the experience. And if we take a little dose of it, we usually can let it come and go, like the sound of a bird, and we'll feel strengthened by it, because we'll understand it we'll see it clearly. One way you can tell if you've taken too big a dose is if you feel overwhelmed by it, debilitated by it, and more afraid of it. It's, it's been too much, uh, and we haven't 
learned um, how to work with it. So it's very wise to go slowly and gently with it. It's uh, not weakness and not avoidance to take a bit of it and then back off, go back to the breath, open to sound, go for a walk, whatever it is, however it's happening for us. Emotions aren't necessarily rational, and that's often why we're afraid of emotion, because we can't figure it out. It has much more to do with a more primal body experience. So if there's a... Beware of the figuring it out mind, because trying to figure out an emotion is a very intellectual process, but it's often a defense. And it can often prevent us from being able to learn to experience the fear fully, to let it come and go. Mostly it's helpful to have an attitude of beginner's mind, to see if we can see if we can experience fear as if it's the very first time, like a child would explore their first snow which might be coming soon. You know, the first snow, to just look at a snowflake, it's like the angels have come down from heaven. They're amazing to experience the first snow. And it's amazing to experience fear when we're not resisting it. It's, it's, it's amazing to have that freedom and willingness to experience something that is like this um, very deep insecurity that keeps us from being free, it keeps us tied to experience. Beginner's mind means that we're willing to be like a child. We have to be willing not to know. And so much of the practice is this willingness not to know. Ultimately, Each moment is new. Each moment takes birth and passes away. And if we can be that vulnerable, the vulnerability is really the truth. If we can really be so open to life that that next moment really is new, it will be completely unknown. We have to totally let go of the past and totally let go of the future to really be in the present moment. And it takes enormous courage to do that because we have to let go of everything we know and sink into that moment and be there like a newborn. This is the practice to be that fully alive, to be that fully willing to experience this unknown. Years ago, a teacher named Ajahn Chah came here, who was a a monk, a forest monk from Thailand. And I was serving him lunch every day. And every day he would ask me a question, you know, like, what is happiness? And then the next day it would be, what is peace? And every day he'd ask me a new question. And then anything I answered was wrong. And, And he would tease me mercilessly. He would just draw out 
more and more answers from me around the question, and then he would just say, you know, just make fun of me and say it was wrong. It was never mean. It was it was fun. But after about you know a week, I kept trying to get the right answer and trying to get the right answer. <laughs> I was getting more and more frustrated until finally I realized there was no right answer. And it was. You know, we have this incredible need or fear. You know, it's like we fear that we're not doing the practice right. We have this, such a need to know, to do it right. Um, and it's just wonderful when we can let go of that and really let ourselves be insecure. I experienced that so much with Upandita, who, whenever he would give me a new instruction, I would feel such a pressure to get it, you know, to do that instruction again and do it right. And I would put all this pressure on myself for a while, and then it would be like, I already learned this. (laughs) I don't have to do this to myself. And just be willing to be like a child, and not to have to get it right, not to have to get the right answer not to have to get the A in school. Um, It's really simple. The practice is really simple. It's just being able to live through a moment. And however it is, we have all this judgment about how it should be. But when you can just let go of how it should be, and just let it be how it is, there's less and less fear. There's more vulnerability. And with a mindfulness, we can see it clearly. There's more strength. There's more trust. One of the questions that Upandita used to ask me after, toward the end of every retreat, um, because I would feel in this real place of surrender and trust, and I would always make the mistake of mentioning the word trust, which he would always say, <laughs> he would get, all up, get up and he'd go, what do you trust? <laughs> and I go, uh-oh. And I, <laughs> I knew he wanted me to say the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. You know, and and I, it was like, if I ever said that, he'd always say, be happy. And I knew I would get the answer right, but I wouldn't do it. I'd always try to go into what I thought <laughs> trust was. But that process um, really strengthened me. Because again, I, you know, every time he'd ask me what trust was, I knew what he wanted, the answer. I mean, I knew what he wanted me to give him, but I had to do it from my own experience. And that helped me a lot in terms of trusting what I was learning from my own experience. And after a while, I realized he kept doing that to strengthen my, my practice, what I really believed, to, you know, what I was learning from my experience. There was a man that I met at the Hopi Reservation that Stephen and I went to this summer. I met him, you know, just kind of walking uh, through a corridor. Uh, And he had been in uh, the Vietnam War as a Marine. And I started uh, sharing with him some of my nephew's experiences in the Persian Gulf War as a Marine, talking about what it was like for him as a Marine and him, and it was a really wonderful talk. And then at the end of the conversation, I said, well, my nephew's in school now, and he's really struggling, and sometimes I wish 
I could send him more money and help him. And he said, he doesn't need help. And it was, it was one of those moments where it really went in, you know, what he said. It wasn't, it wasn't um, a superficial thing. He said, the Hopis believe we don't need help. And it was such a deep, deep place he was coming from in terms of that. It's like one of the things that Upandita taught me more than anything else was to learn from my own experience and to trust that. And it was something that no one can ever take away from me. No one can ever take away from you the understanding that you're getting from your own experience. And we don't need help. You know, we have this incredible understanding that's possible. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't get instruction, we don't talk and, and, and converse and help each other on, a, on one level, but on a very deep level in terms of freedom, we don't need help. It's all in us, it's all there for us to discover. Freedom isn't getting rid of fear, it's learning how to work with it skillfully. The inner security isn't based on what's happening, but how we're relating to what's happening. So we can learn to relate to this deep vulnerability that we all take birth into as human beings with compassion with understanding, and with trust. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.